Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is brought to you by MathBot.com. MathBot.com is a fun little game that fills a serious hole that the public and even the private schools miss, and that is knowledge of programming and the math behind programming. MathBot.com gives parents a much-needed tool to make sure their children don't fall behind in this new information age. Software is eating the world, and those who don't know how to code will be left behind as more and more jobs become automated. MathBot.com gives kids and even adults Adults like me, the knowledge needed to thrive in this new world. MathBot may just seem like a fun and simple game, but behind the scenes it uses the same method Julius Caesar, Isaac Newton, Einstein, and everyone else were all taught math before the state got its greasy hands into education. This method goes all the way back to classical Greece, the dawn of civilization. MathBot will gradually upload the math and logical skills needed to understand programming into the mind of any player. It's said that the pen is mightier than the sword, but now code is even mightier than the pen. So become mighty and learn to code over at mathbot.com. Oh my gosh, I've been a libertarian my entire life. I just didn't know what to call myself. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. What's up, doggies, kitties, lions, bears, tigers? Frankly, whatever animals you identify with or dress up as on your free time is totally none of my business, so I will leave that up to you. But either way, I'm glad to have you here on another edition of Lions of Liberty. This, of course, is our flagship program that I've been bringing you each and every week for over five years now, interviewing great minds and leaders in the libertarian movement like you're going to hear today. We also do amazing roundtables called Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, where we just kick back and shoot the shit and talk about liberty with our friends. And that format, my friends, is going to be expanding starting next month when each one of us, each one of our three shows, of course, for those new to the program, it's not just myself here on Mondays. We've also got Brian bringing you his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land on Wednesdays. And John Odermatt brings you his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system every Friday on Felony Fridays. But starting next month, we are all going to be incorporating our very popular roundtable format, Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, into our individual programs. So you'll actually be getting three editions of that show in, in some form or another every single month. So we're very excited about expanding that format. Of course, our supporters on Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Liberty, they already get a bunch of extra shows in that sort of format. We just did a two-hour Ask Me anything version for patrons only uh, libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor live our very first live edition that we streamed for our supporters so that was very fun we had an absolute blast doing that we also do our conspiracy corner uh, roundtable where we of course dive into various conspiracies we recently took a big deep dive looking at the mystery of bigfoot i also do the league of liberty podcast with our good friends chris bengal from we are libertarians johnny adams from blast off and roger paxson of the Lava Flow podcast, all friends of this program. And some of you may have heard rumors of a rival show, something called the Legion of 
Liberty Doom or Doom of Liberty Legions. I don't really know. It's a bunch of second stringers. Uh, it's actually a good friends of ours. Dance Mots of the System is Down, Remzo Martinez of the Remzo Martinez Experience, and my friends from Lions of Liberty, Brian and John, have all gotten together, of course, along with Howie as well, who you're going to be hearing a lot more of with the expansion of our Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor format. They all formed yet another bonus show. So this is all stuff you can find by joining our Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That keeps this show running. That keeps this show going. And we reward our patrons very greatly with loads and loads of bonus content. I actually just did a Ask Me Anything while taking a road trip this past weekend. So we keep the content coming. We keep it flowing. Please do check that out. One last thing before we get to today's interview. I want to let you know where you can find today's show notes, which will be located over at lionsofliberty.com slash 387. I've done 387 editions of this program. Can you believe it? Today's guest is a writer and digital marketer and has authored more than 100 research articles for various libertarian outlets, such as the Advocates for Self-Government, the Foundation for Economic Freedom, and many, many more. She is currently the Publications Manager for the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm very pleased to welcome Miss Chloe Anagnos. Chloe, are you ready to roar? Let's go. I am ready. Did I emphasize the correct syllables on your last name? Let's start there. Um, no, but that's okay. So it's Anagnos. Yes, that's right. correct. Professional podcasters would have asked you that before the show, but you know, I just kind of do this by the seat of my pants. Well, and I don't really care anymore when people mess up my first or last name. But so. how do people mess up, messed up your first name? Oh, I get called everything. Cleo. Chloe. Chlo. Chlo. <laughs> do real humans call you that? Are you serious? Yeah. Like at Starbucks or they spell my name with a K. Oh, geez. And these are the people we want to teach about libertarianism well and these are the people who want 15 dollars an hour so i i don't know but um yep just good old chloe and agnes that's me all right chloe well you know you've done a lot of writing on a, a plethora of subjects relevant to libertarianism over the years but I, I suppose we should start at the beginning so why don't you first tell us how you became interested in the ideas of liberty how did you get wrapped up in all this weird libertarian stuff I think, and, and I was really reflecting on this um, in the last couple of weeks, and I think a lot of it stems from the tanning tax that was implemented in 2009. Um, I am a retired uh, pageant contestant, so tanning was a big part of preparation because you don't want to look like a ghost on stage when you're under a bunch of lights. Um, and I remember being a teenager going to my local salon and there being like a sign in the window that said, hey... Um, unfortunately, we now have to charge a 10% tax because of Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, what have you. Um, and I just remember being, you know, a broke teenager that wanted gas money and realizing like, man, I just cannot afford if I'm going two or three times a week, it's really taking a lot out of my babysitting money. Um, so it, it really kind of started there and then progressed a lot um, when I went to college. I was a sophomore um, in 2012, so I paid a ton of attention. Obviously, when you're on a college campus, election years are huge. Um, and it really just kind of stemmed from there. Very cool. And how did you, you take to getting into actually like 
being active and, and being out there talking and writing about libertarian ideas, because I think for a lot of us, uh, at least for me in the beginning, when I first started getting into this stuff, to me, libertarianism was just this weird personal hobby I had where I would read books about liberty, read articles, uh, get fired up, get upset. But it was just me for a while. And it was only uh, when I saw this Ron Paul guy on stage ranting and raving about things that I got the courage or what have you to start talking about things uh, more in my regular life to first to my friends and now eventually here on a podcast for for the world to listen to. So how did you kind of cross that bridge from just believing in these ideas and getting interested in them to actually being out there and publicly speaking about them? I don't really think it it started for me until about 2015, um, which which is kind of weird because I I really just dove in um, and just went really fast with a lot of the things that I started writing about. Um, but my first job out of college was doing the marketing and the and the the digital work for the advocates for self government. Um, and I actually walked into that job interview not really knowing anything about the organization, not really knowing a ton about the position. But when I was asked if I was a libertarian, um, I kind of had to sit there and think because at least in the Midwest um, and especially in Indiana, which is you know typically a red state you're either a Democrat or a Republican. And I had never really been asked that before. I always just thought like, you know, I'm conservative, but I I really value like personal freedom too, um, which oftentimes, you know, doesn't really happen. Um, So I really was just this young, fresh out of college person who really had to dive in for my job and realize that, oh my gosh, I've been a libertarian my entire life. I just didn't know what to call myself. It's a kind of a difficult bridge to cross, I think, for a lot of people, because so many people are so tied into, I guess, their team. Like you're saying, everyone's either a Democrat or a Republican. And I find even when I hear people say things like, you know, why isn't there just somewhere where we can be, you know, for people that are fiscally conservative and and socially liberal, not to to coin the Gary Johnson marketing (laughs) aspect, but when you even bring up one there is there's there's the libertarians you could be one of those they kind of give you a crazy look like oh okay yeah anyway i'm gonna go back to voting for republicans and democrats so how are you able to sort of break people out of that mindset that this isn't really about a team it shouldn't be about a team anyway it should be about ideas and if it's about ideas we should actually have a conversation not just default to you know team bad team good team left team right right and i think a lot of that also just came from my job of marketing for the organization, um, doing the marketing for the world's smallest political quiz. One of the best ways, in my opinion, to get people to kind of realize that they are libertarians, especially if they fall within that um, quadrant. Um, But I I really realized probably 2015, summer of 2015, after I had graduated, I realized that political parties, do, do they matter to an extent? Sure. Um, but I don't really think it matters in terms of promoting what you actually believe in. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when we have someone new that's in office, whether it's at the local, state, or national level, it's it's kind of the thing where it's the old boss is the same as the new boss and vice versa. Um, so that's when I kind of realized, like, you know, it doesn't really help when I'm advocating for candidates, even though I've had a ton of friends and a ton of people that I really like in the different communities that I've lived in who've run for office, um, I'll always, you know, support them and advocate for them. Um, But I think it's really the system at its core that's just broken. Um, So the way that I've been able to kind of break out of that shell is by partnering with organizations like America's Future Foundation. Um, I'm the Indianapolis chapter leader 
I'm able to do a lot in the Indianapolis area to share free market principles and to share um, you know, the importance of personal freedom. And I'm also able to do that with a lot of the things that I write about. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, when they talk to me, if, especially if they're just getting to know me and maybe they didn't know me in, in college when I, you know, said, oh, I'm a hardcore Republican. Um, cause you know, again, being in Indiana, really all you have is, is a, a really big and powerful and strong Republican party. Um, a lot of people, when they read what I write, they have no idea what I am politically, especially if they're not really sure about libertarianism or what it means. So I, I always try to, um, write that way, even though people who do value the free market and who do value libertarianism, um, get it. Um, but especially like friends from high school are like, wow, I have no idea, you know, where you side. And I don't know. I just always think that's really fun. Sure. I think people get confused, understandably so, when you express views in a way that doesn't fit in to these left and right norms. When, you know, maybe you're pro-choice and pro-gun and then it just creates a schism in their brain when they, they go, wait, that cannot, does not compute, can't be both things, you know? So, and, but that's a good thing. Cause I think that blowing, you know, blowing someone's mind open a minute is actually what gives them pause and makes them, them listen to you a little bit uh, more so than if you're just kind of towing a company line, maybe even saying the same thing, but in a, in a more kind of, uh, in a way that sort of fits more inside with the left or the right. Right. And I think what's really important too, is to use personal examples. Um, and so I always talk about how, at least with my younger friends who are you know, younger than 30. I talk about how, you know, when you just graduate from college, you're finally making money. Um, you feel like you're the richest person in the world, even though you're not. Um, but I talk about that, uh, roughly if you're, you know, somewhat middle income starting out pretty okay, you probably pay anywhere from 10 to $12,000 in taxes in Indiana a year. And I always ask my friends, you know, would you rather give that money to the government keep it for yourself and use it however you want, or, um, you know, give it to the charity of your choice. And they always say, Oh, I'd rather give it to, you know, um, this charity that I advocate for, or I'll pay off, you know, part of my student loans. And I say, okay, so then why are you giving it to the government or why do you advocate for political parties that want to just give that money to the government? And that's kind of where I'm able to get in and then start that conversation. Um, because again, kind of like what you talk about, or at least what you talked about earlier, a lot of people just, I don't know if they're ignorant. I, I think people understand the ideas behind taxation, but they don't really look at it at its core. And it's kind of one of those um, things where, you know, if it's hidden away and not really talked about a lot, people are okay with it. Um, and so that's where I'm able to really connect, at least with younger people, especially recent college grads. I want to tick back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, I'm sure many of my listeners are already familiar with it, but uh, you mentioned the world's smallest political quiz that was, of course, uh, created by David Nolan, who's one of the founders of the Libertarian Party as well. Uh, why do you find that world's smallest political quiz so effective? Can you just describe what it sort of uh, you know brings out in people when they when they tend to fill it out? So it is ten questions, five economic. Um, economic questions, and then five like personal liberty questions. I mean, you can find it online, just the advocates.org backslash quiz. Um, shameless plug. Um, but it asks, you know, do you agree? Yes, no, or are you maybe? And then it ends up putting you on this quadrant of um, being 
libertarian, being on the right, being a statist, uh, being a centrist, and then being um, more like liberal. And so a lot of people, especially young people that I've talked to, whether I've gone to different college campuses, um, different you know, like Students for Liberty out in D.C. every year, a lot of them fall, if they're not already libertarian, they're somewhere on the line. And the idea is to talk to that person so that they eventually shift that dot back into the libertarian quadrant. Um, because ultimately, when someone believes in economic freedom, really you should be able to take a lot of those same values of you know, taking charge of your finances, taking charge of, you know, your, your property and yourself, and you can translate that on over to personal freedoms. Um, and usually you can convince people it's not going to happen in just one conversation, but it definitely is something that just kind of plants that seed. So they think about it differently. Um, so uh, again, I'm a huge advocate for the world's smallest political quiz. Um, you can get it through the advocate store still quiz cards. Um, you can even get an Operation Politically Homeless kit, which is really cool. And that is something that you can use at conferences, fairs, festivals. And it's like a giant quiz poster. And then you can, um, what I used to do is I'd give people dots so they'd put them on the poster, which was really fun. And then you can kind of see collectively where people were um, at, any, at any given time. So it's really a good way to do it. When you do those with like large groups, do, do almost, do most people... Uh, kind of end with the uh, the intended result of being sort of in that libertarian area? Well, and sometimes I'll ask people like, you know, they'll take the quiz and then they'll put the sticker on the poster and they'll be like, oh, well, I, you know, I always thought I was, you know, a Republican. I was, I was, you know, conservative and their dot is maybe like right on the line between libertarian or conservative. <laughs> and it's, again, it's just having some of those, conversations again about like really specific things, but just emphasizing that, you know, you value personal and economic freedom and that's what it means to be a, a small L libertarian. Um, I did get, this was really funny. I can't remember what conference it was maybe, maybe like three or four years ago. And um, this was a student's, I think it was Students for Liberty, and pretty much all of the stickers were on the Libertarian quadrant, like to the point where you couldn't put any more on. Like it makes sense. And then I had this one kid, he came over and he was just at this conference with a friend, didn't really know what was going on. He took the quiz and he ended like as far as you could be on the statist quadrant. And like, I was trying to talk to him, but it was like pulling teeth. And I realized like, okay, this is a loss of cause. Just, you know, give him some paperwork and, and he'll leave. And someone came by and they were like, oh my gosh, what? There's one statist here. We got to find this person. And I didn't like point him out. I just said, hey, like this kid's from Canada. So maybe it makes sense. I don't know. But it was, it was really, really funny. And after a while, I just took it off because that was the topic of conversation for like an hour. And people were like, tell me where this person is. I'm like, I, okay, this is just, this is just insane. So this is not the purpose of the exercise. No, this is not the purpose of the exercise. Like these are students just leave the kids alone, <laughs> you know? 
what subjects do you find uh, in your writing specifically that seems to connect with people the most? Obviously, there's you know libertarians are going to connect with things in a certain way, but you know, kind of sticking with what we're, what we're talking about earlier, winning people over from that left-right paradigm. Uh, are there certain subjects that you find are more likely to sort of uh, spark that interest in them and get them thinking, okay, maybe there's this other way of thinking about things that I should be looking into? I think the biggest thing that has helped me at least get get people thinking a little bit differently is trying to tie in libertarianism or free market principles, values with pop culture and things that are happening in the world, um, especially in terms of entertainment. Because anytime Kim Kardashian or Taylor Swift or Kanye West is in the news, people are going to click on it and people are going to want to read about it. Um, it, at least people under the age of 30, in my opinion, that's what I found. Um, so I write a lot about Taylor Swift. Um, not only am I a fan of her music, but I think she's an incredible businesswoman. Um, so that's been really helpful. And then kind of like what I was talking about earlier, anytime you can find some type of personal connection or take people back to their childhood or, um, you know, try to be on the same playing field as everyone else in America, if that makes sense. That's what's been very helpful for me. So, for example, I know right now in the U.S. it's Girl Scout cookie season, um, only because they've been like chasing me around um, grocery store parking lots. Um, but I wrote an article around this time last year that talked about the importance of um, charity groups like the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts of America that teach skills like entrepreneurship, like accounting. Um, I kid you not, I went to the grocery store last year in Indianapolis and this group of Girl Scouts was selling cookies. They were maybe like anywhere from eight to 10. And they were, they said, oh, well, we take um, credit card, we take debit card, we can take um, Venmo and we can do PayPal. And they had like an iPad with like that swipe thing. I, I was waiting for you to say was, Bitcoin. <laughs> well, no, I almost wanted to ask, but they were 10 and I'm, you know, I'm short, but I'm That's in a big conversation mom. to get to, to, you know, talk it, yeah. to about Satoshi and what have you, <laughs> especially, with, especially with kids. But it just inspired me to write this article. Like who wasn't in brownies or Cub Scouts at one point? Look back on your life and look at some of these, you know, non-government programs that are out there that teach these values to kids. Um, And so not only is it important, like anytime I see Girl Scouts, I shouldn't, but I buy a box of cookies just to, you know, to support them and to get some, you know, fabulous uh, Thin Mints. But it's showing kids that if you work hard and depend on your own work, that you're going to go far in this life. So that's why I think it's important. Well, Chloe, I have to ask the obvious follow-up question. What is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Uh, thin mints. Okay, so the best thing to do is to freeze them. Yes, and then, absolutely. Because so, they're just delicious. And then I even had, um, I haven't done it in a while, but you can take a couple of the frozen cookies out, put them in a plastic bag, crush them up, and then do like, um, like a... Kahlua and Bailey's. Ooh, and now we're talking. 
Yeah, and then use the the cookie crumbs to coat your um, the rim of your glass, and there you have a wonderful alcoholic beverage. I and- think I've got my my evening home alone planned right now. I okay, gotta find, I just gotta go find some Girl Scouts. <laughs> hey, kids! Exactly. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to make this drink. Do you have thin mints? <laughs> well, okay. So, speaking of Girl Scouts, have you seen? And I haven't written about it um, yet because obviously in Indiana we don't have uh, medicinal marijuana. But all of these Girl Scouts in Colorado, when um, marijuana was legalized, they were selling cookies outside of the dispensaries. And yes, I remember paying. seeing that. <laughs> they were making so much money. And it's like, oh, my gosh, if only I was a troop leader and if only medicinal marijuana was legal in the States, my girls would be going places. <laughs> that, that's called really understanding your target audience. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> one day, one day. I'll get back to that. When I when I was a kid, I, Thin Mints were always my favorite. But as an adult, I have grown to uh, really appreciate the Samoas. I have to say, but those are those are also pretty good. They're up there on my list for me. Hey, friends! I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C. insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in D.C. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Free Man Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. I want to take back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago, and that is, uh, you know, you like to write about Taylor Swift a lot because people are talking about her and she's, you know, an an example you can, uh, you know, put out there about certain things. But I I am kind of curious, what, what, can you give me like one example of how you have tied Taylor Swift into libertarianism? Of course, Um, probably. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have said one. How much time do you have? (laughs) I mean, I'm here all evening. Um, but the the big one, and a lot of libertarians um, have have given me a little bit of flack for this. Uh, but I, she, I find that hard to believe that libertarians would give people flack about anything. But yeah. I mean, you know, I I deal with it, and I don't argue with people as much on the internet anymore. Um, but she is a huge advocate for property rights and for intellectual property, and I'm only super super crazy supportive of what she's done in terms of going head to head with Apple when they decided to, um, I think this was maybe like a year, maybe a year and a half ago, Apple basically said, Hey, we're going to offer the streaming service where people can go ahead and listen to your music, but we're not going to, we're not going to pay any of these artists for it. No royalties, forget it. Um, because they're trying to compete with Pandora, Spotify, different services like that. And Taylor Swift said to Apple, like, hey, we have to buy your iPhones and your products. No one is giving, um, you know, you're not giving out iPads or iPods, whatever, or smartphones for free. 
Um, I'm pulling all of my music off of iTunes because you're going to pay me royalties for it. And I agree. I agree with her. Um, I'm a classically trained musician, um, thought about actually studying music in college, started to, and then switched to journalism. Um, but I understand how tough it is to make money. One as an artist, uh, two as a writer in three, I understand how difficult it is when you finally quote unquote, make it to protect your product, to protect your image and to make sure that you're getting at least a cut. And I know a lot of libertarians are you know, they'll sit there and they'll say, Oh, my IP. Um, but in the music industry, especially with a lot of the interviews that I've listened to, I know that that's something that's very difficult to combat. Um, because again, you can, you can only go on, on tour so many times. Um, and you can only, you know, have so many clothing lines and fragrances and, and whatnot. So, um, Maybe that sounds kind of silly, uh, but again, you know, you you have to protect your work in some way or another. Yeah, I think the subject uh, of IP is an interesting one. Obviously, I, I think philosophically, many libertarians, uh, at least the way the state enforces IP or m- maybe has a monopoly on the enforcement of IP, uh, a large number of libertarians would be against. But I tend to look at it that you know, obviously, the state controls the IP enforcement in many ways. So many things tend to go that way for enforcement mechanisms, which I'm not always a fan of. But I think even in a complete sort of, a, you know, Ancapistan, libertarianistan, whatever you want to call the perfect libertarian society, you're going to see people who want to protect their work in certain ways. And, you know, I guess you, you might say Taylor Swift could tell, you know, tell Apple or whoever not to use her music and they could use it anyway. But Taylor Swift is so freaking famous that she could say, look, they're, you know, they're doing this without my permission. They're violating my sort of, you know, my, my, uh, my image or what have you, my business. And I think in, in a free market sense, there are many ways that if the state weren't involved, that artists would be able to sort of enforce their own IP in a way. And I don't, I don't know if that's a perfect solution either. Uh, this isn't really the realm that, that I'm into too much, but I always try to think about how these things would play out if we did not have a state monopoly uh, on the enforcement of, of certain things or on the definition of intellectual property. And I do think that things would play out a lot differently than, I guess, a lot of the people who are just um, you know firmly opposed to it would, would think. Right. And I think a big thing to remember, too, is that for people who are making their money off of music, technology has changed so much that not only do they have to um, you know keep up with it, but you also have to worry about people taking advantage, um, especially with things, you know, like LimeWire, like when everybody would download music illegally, um, wouldn't pay for it. Um, I know that was a really big concern. People aren't buying CDs as much as they used to anyway. And so I think from Taylor Swift's perspective, it's, hey, everyone's streaming music now, which is fine and dandy, but on Spotify and on Pandora, at least they pay me for it. So Apple, you're not going to be any different. I'm just going to pull my stuff and go. Um, And if there's one person you don't want to make angry in the music industry, it's probably Taylor Swift because her fan base is crazy and I'm kind of one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't tell. Are there any other, since we're going down the Taylor Swift rabbit hole, are there any other examples of something Taylor Swift has done that you could point out to her? Because I might make this whole podcast about Taylor Swift at this point. And that would totally be fine with me. I'm, I'm, I'm down for it. If I had my cello with me, which you know I do, and it's like not tuned, so I'm not going to pull it out. I'd like strum a couple chords. Uh, but anyway, 
another big thing that she's done recently on her reputation tour that just ended, um, she had a song called on that album. She's a song called dress. And during that performance, she had girls or performers come out and they were doing the serpentine dance. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but essentially it's, it's a piece of costume that protrudes from like a leotard or whatever outfit you're wearing. And it makes it look like you have wings. And when you use the light appropriately, it basically looks like you're this giant angel kind of flowing around. Um, And it's really, really cool. Um, Developed in, I want to say like the 1920s, 30s by an artist uh, by the name of Louis Fuller. And she was one of the original pioneers of artists getting paid for their work. Um, And she was female. And Taylor always dedicates that song, at least on that tour, to her, which is really cool. So when at the end of the song on the the screen, it would pop up like this quote from from Fuller, be like, I have no idea who this person is. Um, And then I looked into it and realized like, oh, wow, like this is really cool. So she's kind of like... Paying, um, paying respect to one of the biggest pioneers in artists getting paid for their work, especially female artists. Um, so that was really subtle. And T-Swift usually isn't like crazy big into symbolism. At least she has been in her last two records. But this was something that I thought was really cool. So, of course, I wrote about that, too. Are we talking about Illuminati symbolism? <laughs> I've I seen mean, a few of those no. of those videos. <laughs> there's there's a little bit in there. There's a little bit in there. <laughs> Do you think there is something to that? I mean, not to go down the super super weird rabbit holes, and I don't mean something to the Illuminati, but I mean the some artists do use weird symbology like that. And sometimes I wonder if it's only so that some uh, conspiracy theorists will go and make a YouTube video about it and just to bring more attention to them. Oh yeah. Well, um, so I'm glad you asked because I also, when I was really young, I used to be super into the Beatles. That's all I listened to growing up. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of their work, um, Absolutely. but later in, okay, awesome. Later in their careers, a lot of their album covers had like really weird symbols and just weird pictures. And um, it was surrounding like a lot of these conspiracy theories, um, especially for Abbey Road. Um, the, the theory was that Paul was dead and that iconic um, image of the Beatles walking across Abbey Road. Did you ever notice that Paul wasn't wearing shoes? In the album, I have watched entire documentaries about the conspiracy theory that Paul was replaced by a fake. So, I love so yes, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, and for people who like aren't super familiar, apparently in the UK, um, you used to bury people without shoes on. So that was like some type of clue to prompt all these hippies that oh, Paul's Paul's dead. And my dad used to tell me that like people would drop out of school to follow these clues around whenever the Beatles. <laughs> least an album so i think they're maybe they're the pioneers of that um taylor swift uh in her feud with the kardashians and kanye west um was called a snake a lot on the internet so that's why she took a snake and made that like her symbol for the reputation tour which is really cool so she really Uh, likes to own whatever her critics are, are out there saying about her well and it's like so cool though you know like if people are saying one thing about you um you know she'll she'll take it and she'll turn it around um if you haven't watched the um reputation stadium tour in its 
in its entirety. It's on Netflix. Um, so y- you can kind of watch that and people, your listeners can watch that too and see some of the symbolism and hear a little bit about what she talks about. Um, but you know, whether you're a fan or not, I just think it's really cool. And a lot of artists don't, they don't do things like that anymore. Um, and when I was younger, I would always like pull out my dad's records and he'd say like, okay, um, see if you can, you know, go down the list and see who's trying to say what, and we'd like relate it to, to the music. So that's one reason why I was, and I still am always really into to music and art. Um, as far as Illuminati symbols, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe there is something going on there, but again, I think, you know, any press is good press. So if you can get people talking, you might as well be provocative in some way. I should start using more, you know, Illuminati symbology. I guess you can't really use symbology on a podcast. That's kind of tough. No, but you can with graphics. I'll help you out. We'll figure it out. Great. Uh, (laughs) Chloe, another subject I want to dive into a little bit, because it's something you write about a lot, is uh, student loans and and the student loan crisis, particularly how it's affecting millennials. Uh, You recently wrote an article uh, about how millennials are having trouble buying houses. Me, it's just because I live in Los Angeles and I I can't afford them. But uh, I guess for people (laughs) saddled with student debt, that's really holding a lot of younger people back from being homeowners. And uh, you you also wrote about another article about how millennials expect to die with their debt. And I know a lot of people that have massive student debt. I was able to pay my debt off, luckily. Um, but I know people that has have debt that is just, they've given up on even thinking about trying to pay it because it's so massive. So uh, mm-hmm. I, especially from the libertarian perspective, how do you approach this subject? Because it, it can be difficult to say, I mean, I, I certainly don't approach it this way, but many people would, would just say, well, you took out the loan, you got to pay it. And I think mm-hmm. it's a little more complicated than that. I think there's certainly some some credibility to saying you need to take personal responsibility for this. But that kind of leaves aside the fact that in many ways, student loans are often pushed upon people in ways where they're not fully, you know, at an age and a time where they're not fully cognizant of the, of the consequences of those loans. So I think that is another angle of it. Um, but it's also student loans are also treated totally differently than other kinds of debt, where at least when with other types of debt, you can get out of it uh, via a bankruptcy or that sort of thing. But that that is impossible with student loan debt. So what's your approach on this issue and and how are you able to sort of put a libertarian spin on it? I think the big thing, and you really hit the nail on the head, is that... Sweet. I love when I do that. Yeah. No, you did it. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, we have these like college recruiters and guidance counselors who come into junior and senior classes in the United States and say, oh, well, if you fill out this government form and have your parents sign it, you know, you can qualify for... I don't know, like $200,000, something crazy like that. So we've really created this culture where we're giving way too much, I'd say, quote unquote, power and responsibility to 16, 17, 18 year old kids who have no idea what they want to do in life. And they're taking out these massive student loans, most of which they don't need. And then here's the other thing, like you said, they're treated completely differently. I mean, you don't even have your credit checked, at least to my knowledge, when you have um, when you take out a student loan. So you have these kids who have maybe only worked like a part-time job taking out massive amounts of money to go study underwater basket weaving at um, really expensive private universities. And I, I don't know if that's always the case. Um, I'm, I myself, I graduated with no debt. I worked like 10 jobs all throughout college and saved and saved and saved and saved. Um, So I was really fortunate. I have friends who are 
buried in debt. I have a friend um, from high school who I think was supposed to go to med school, something like that, ended up dropping out. Now they use their biology degree to work at Starbucks, which is fine. I think Starbucks is a great company. Um, But I think a lot of the responsibility falls on the individual. But at the same time, like, I hate to say like, oh, the, you know, it's the whole age of consent thing. But when you're 17 or 18 years old and all you care about is Friday night football and what you're going to wear to prom, there should be no reason for these adults to come in and pressure you to make these giant life decisions. Um, My mother has taught at a community college in Michigan for the last 30 years. And I have learned single-handedly that not everybody needs to go to college and not everybody should go to college. Um, So I think a lot of it is a cultural problem for one. Um, A lot of it too is adults getting way too pushy, um, parents getting way too pushy when their kids should probably just graduate from high school, get a local job, and then maybe go to community college to, you know, test out some classes, see what they want to do, that kind of thing. Uh, But ultimately, I'm kind of in the camp where, well, you know, you took out that loan and you have to be responsible for it. Um, But it's really not that crystal clear. Do you see any sort of a libertarian slash free market uh, solutions to the student debt crisis? I mean, if you could (laughs) tweak a law here or there, I mean, I always tell people at a minimum, I mean, at least, at least make it something you can go bankrupt on because that would, A, it would force student loan companies to be a little more discerning with the loans they're giving out. Of course, I would also advocate ending government subsidies immediately, but in terms of solutions for the people already saddled with this debt, uh, I mean, I I guess that's the only thing. Suggestion I can really think of is at least allow them to go bankrupt, um, and you know maybe in seven years from now they can be clear of it and you know start a new life. But uh, it is a difficult subject because many people do feel trapped, and you know maybe if when they were younger, like you said, when they're seventeen, eighteen, making these decisions, you know they were in a completely different mindset or they were sort of pressured into it, and that shouldn't forgive it altogether. But I do think that it's a is a major issue when it's treated so differently from other types of debt. Well, exactly. And a big solution, I think, is allowing people to maybe declare bankruptcy, uh, if, if that's even possible. Something else that I'm seeing are a lot of private companies that are coming in and saying, hey, we will you know, pay down your student loans for X, or maybe like they're having a contest or something like that. Um, right. And I, I read an article, I can't remember what the stipulations are, um, but Natty Light, the the like really nasty cheap beer that you would drink at like orientation, um, is offering some type of like scholarship or contest to grads, um, and they will like forgive part of your debt for for some reason. But um, you know, I just think it's funny, and I think probably within the next you know two to three years, we're going to be seeing a lot of really big private companies coming in and saying, hey, we'll forgive your student loans for, you know, maybe you do a a year, uh, you know, Doctors Without Borders, maybe you're a nurse, you know, something like that. Um, Or maybe you're a doctor, that thing too. But I've seen a lot of people doing things like that. I have friends that have taken on part-time jobs. Um, They have maybe you know, two or three jobs. Unfortunately, a lot of my friends that are teachers, they have like two or three jobs just trying to pay off their loans. Um, But something else that's really interesting too, and this is something, again, I don't really know how we combat it because my parents growing up, 
um, were Greek Orthodox. They were super, super strict with us until we went to college. And then they were like, okay, have fun, like make good life choices. Um, (laughs) But my sister is a senior at Ball State here in Indiana where I went. And um, she knows people. I'm not going to like name them out because I know they listen to my stuff. Um, But she knows these people who will take out massive student loans way more for like what they need them for. And then they'll use extra money for like clothes or shopping sprees, or they'll go like on spring break. Uh, They'll buy like a new car or a motorcycle, like really, really crazy things. Yeah. It's hard to have as much sympathy for, uh, you know, that aspect of it. Yeah, no. And it's just all these really, like I ate ramen and these kids are like going out and eating fast food every day. You know, I just think it's absolutely crazy. But then it's also one of those things where, well, maybe they weren't raised with the same values or maybe they were like, Hey, I got all of this money. This is what I'm going to do with it. So I don't know. There's definitely a lot of personal responsibility that goes into it. It seems crazy to me that student loan companies, I mean, you'd think they would want to give out loans that they believe can be paid back. And you would think they they wouldn't want to just write checks to students that might do things like, you know, buy a new car or a motorcycle or what have you, or just go party with the money. You would think that they they would set it up so maybe they can directly pay the school's tuition. I know part of student loans is also, you know, theoretically to pay your living expenses too, but you'd think they would want to smartly set it up so maybe they're directly paying your rent, directly paying your tuition so you can't get in a situation where they're just buying stuff that there's no way they're ever going to pay you back for. I don't don't run on the student loan company, so what do I know? Right. Well, and I don't run one either, and I think it's a lot easier to just write a check and say, okay, you know, here's... Especially if the government has basically told you that there's no way for these people to get out of this debt and, you know, if, if anything goes wrong, you know, someday the government might even just pay this off for you. So who knows? Well, maybe. And I'm also wondering if, and this is a big if, the student loan bubble will burst just like the housing market did in 2008, 2009. And if we're going to have ourselves another financial crisis when this, you know, the next couple generations of kids come through and are going to these giant universities to study, you know, anthropology or whatever, and then they just end up working, you know, they don't work in their field. So I don't know. I I kind of foresee that happening just because I have seen, I, I mean, all of my friends have taken out student loans. I'm the only person that I know of right now who is debt-free from undergrad. So I don't know. I mean, I, like not to toot my own horn, my parents helped me out when I, when I could. And I, I got a lot of scholarship money and I worked really, really hard and I was way too skinny because I was eating a lot of ramen noodles. Um, but at the same time, you know, I just really worry for a lot of people that I know or that I've heard about who, you know, they're sitting on half a million dollars in loans. And that is from undergrad, which is insane to me. Mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely mind-blowing. And also because the loans seem to come so easily and they're really – there's not much scrutiny put into the issuance of the loans. You know, some kids can go out and get four, five, six, seven years in college, maybe take a European <laughs> vacation in there and it can all – they'll just keep getting that check. Yeah, there were seven I, – and I knew some seventh-year seniors. They were fun. <laughs> I'm sure they were fun. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that they, I don't doubt. They were they were the ones buying all the booze, so it was a good time. <laughs> 
Well, Chloe, it's been a good time having you on and discussing all sorts of things, including, of course, our, our deep dive into uh, the correlation between Taylor Swift and Liberty. But uh, before I let you go, why don't you just delve into a little bit uh, what your current project as the publications manager over at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, what you're doing over there. And uh, please feel free to plug anything else you've got in the works, anything else you've got going on, your social media, the whole nine yards. Great. Well, I am working on all of the books for AIER. All the books. All of the books. So you will see a lot of new publications, republications coming out from us. Um, I'm super excited. They'll all be available on Amazon. Um, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to work with just this amazing group of people um, at AIER. So I have to keep some of it under wraps, of course, but be on the lookout for a lot of titles, eBooks, all of which I'm managing, editing the whole nine yards. It's very fun. Personally, I am planning on traveling a ton this year, still writing a ton about um, current events, Liberty, getting op-eds out, um, doing the best that I can to kind of spread those ideals. Um, if people have questions for me, um, I'm not that interesting, maybe, I don't know. Um, but if they have, uh, you know, any type of stories, idea, story ideas, I'd love to hear them. My email is just chloeanagnos at gmail.com. I'm Chloe and Agnos on Facebook, on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and no, gentlemen, I do not have Snapchat. <laughs> and I believe you're a Taylor Swift fan, 72 on Tumblr, if, that, if that's correct. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, it's been a blast having you on today. It's been great getting to know you. Uh, keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You take care. All right, amigos. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the lovely and talented Chloe Anagnos. I will, of course, link to her work over at today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 387. I went on a plug frenzy about the pride at the beginning of the show. Again, please do check that out at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. But what I want to tell you about right now before I sign off, the Lions, at least a couple of us, have been making a load of appearances on other podcasts. Uh, Howie will be appearing, or has appeared actually, on several podcasts. He's been on the Friends Against Government podcast. Be sure to check that one out. I will also be appearing on that show pretty soon as well. He was also a guest on Sounds Like Liberty, a great show that I have also been on with our good friend Nick Pacone. And I believe Howie's episode talking about Freemasonry will be dropping today over on The System Is Down, again hosted by our good friend Dan Smots, a member of that dastardly Legion of Liberty Doom. So please do check all of this stuff out. I myself has been have been on a couple shows recently as well. Uh, I was on the Brian Nichols show not too long ago, as well as the Remzo Martinez experience. So if you like to hear the Lions of Liberty talk, go listen to us talk on some other shows and maybe open your mind to some other great podcasts out there. I'll link to all this stuff that I mentioned again over in today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 387. And again, today's episode of Lions of Liberty has been brought to you by MathBot.com. The pen may be mightier than the sword, but code is even mightier than the pen. So learn how to build the tools that will bring prosperity and freedom to the world and learn how to code at MathBot.com. That's MathBot.com. Become mighty, my friends. And until next time, live long! and live free.